trying to understand the the forefathers, the the matriarchs, the patriarchs, from on a more personal level, not just looking at at who are these people, but really trying to understand them on a more personal level, and. Along the way, sometimes there's a lot of psychoanalysis that takes place um, in regards to our forefathers. Again, patriarchs, matriarchs trying to read these stories and see, understand them a little bit deeper, perhaps more than what they're saying, what's going on in the subconscious and things of that nature. I'm not personally opposed to that approach, although there are some who are, but I certainly approach this approach with a decent amount of caution and like always really trying to look at the text itself, right? That's where everything has to begin. You can't, uh, unfortunately, and it's very easy for us to come into a text with our own preconceived notions. Our starting point, without even looking at any commentators, is what does the text say? So that's why we always look at the text in these classes and really try to read it critically, carefully, um, and, and hope that the text really speaks for itself. So my goal today is to try to get a sense of who Yitzchak is. There's a lot of interesting literature out there um, describing Yitzchak, and we'll, we'll discuss some of that literature, and, and, and that's more modern literature, um, and comes to certain conclusions about Yitzchak. We're going to share some of that and try to read the text and see if, um, if we could support that or not in the text. Um, and what I also want us to do is appreciate this section we're going to see right now is also our introduction um, to Yitzchak and Rivka as a couple. Okay, so we're not going to go all the way back to the Torah's introduction of who Rivka is, but what we are going to do is see how they encounter one another, and that's going to have much more significance not for our particular narrative over here, but it will certainly teach us something about the future, something about um, later stories, later narratives between Rivka, Yitzchak, and their descendants. Okay, so with that, I'm going to share my screen. Um, once again, thank you to Chabad.org for uh, this great text over here, uh, this great translation. We'll, we'll, we'll adjust if we need to with the translation, but here we go. Okay, so this is just to give you some context to what we're reading over here. This section is um, after Eliezer already uh, establishes that Rivka is the appropriate spouse for Yitzchak, uh, actually due to the kindness that she demonstrates, and he already finishes negotiating with the family of Rivka, and at this point Rivka has told her family that she is interested in going, leaving her land, going to the land of Israel, and now she is heading back. Okay, so we're going to read these few psukim as Rivka travels and meets Yitzchak for the very first time. And again, our goal is to try to understand who is Yitzchak. That's the fundamental question. I think there's enough uh, hints in the section to give us a bit of a sense as to who Yitzchak actually is, or a little bit more about his personality. Um, and again, we'll, we'll review some of the other literature out there that that has different ideas about what Yitzchak's uh, personality is all about. So with that, let's begin. We're going to begin verse 61, Pasuk Samach Aleph. Vatakam Rivka Venaroseha, Rivka and her attendants get up. Vatirkavna Alhagmalim Vatilachna, they ride on the camels and they go. Achareha Ish after the man. So it seems like there's a procession over here. Keep in mind the family is escorting the um, Rivka away. And so there's a there's a procession of sorts where Rivka is following Eliezer. And the servant takes Rivka and they go. Okay, so uh, if you're reading the text carefully, you should be troubled by the fact that within the same Pasuk, it switches from him, from Eliezer, um, who parenthetically is virtually not mentioned by name in this entire 
section in this entire chapter. But in the same pasuk, he is referred to first as Haish, the man, and then it switches to Haeved, the slave. It's not our focus right now, but maybe something to think about what just took place. There's a transition in Eliezer, who Eliezer is, at least in the relation his relationship to Rivka. Okay, but again, that's not really our focus. Here, here's where we have the encounter, the very first counter, an encounter between Yitzchak and Rivka. Yitzchak va mibo be'er lachai ro'i. Yitzchak comes from be'er lachai ro'i, who yoshe be'er tzanegev, and he is, sounds like he's living in the south. Okay? So, let's start with the first part of the Pasuk. Be'er lachai ro'i. Does that name ring a bell? Anybody want to... It's where Hagar and Yishmael were. That's right. This is the, fa- this, the, the last week we read about uh, Hagar and Yishmael. Okay, so again, ya- um, Avram and Sarah send Hagar and Yishmael away, and they daven, each in their own way, and they're saved. And that is Be'er Lachai Ro'i. The word Ro'i speaks to the fact that there is sight, and there is this well, and it reflects the fact that Hagar sees God even in this place. Okay, so this is a place where this miracle takes place, where um, Hagar and Yishmael are saved, specifically Yishmael. Okay, so Be'er Lachai Ro'i, it's interesting why Yitzchak would be there. Um, like, what's the significance of him being in that place? It seems like a funny place. Again, the whole reason Yishmael is being sent in that direction is because of Yitzchak, right? Sarah and Avram don't want them to be, don't want Yishmael to be negatively influencing Yitzchak, and yet um, this is the exact place. It's almost like Yitzchak is following them to that place. We have to understand, it seems very strange, that the place that Yishmael was sent to be away from Yitzchak is precisely where Yitzchak is right now. Okay, so let's come back to that in, in just a moment. Um, there is some discussion as to whether or, not, uh, whether or not Yitzchak is actually living in the South or not. Although it does sound like he's living in the South, um, but, and Rav Hirsch does suggest that he's living in the South, what is unique about the South of Israel um, as opposed to the North? One thing, for one thing, it's hotter. Uh, it's not as easy of a climate to live, right? That's when we say the desert blooms, referring to the Negev. Uh, the Negev is sprouting, right? We see that as a great thing because it's a place which is not so habitable because it's a difficult place to live. Um, and actually, if you look, Avram does the same thing. Avram, in the beginning of his spiritual journey, goes to the south. He, in- he engages in some level of seclusion and then makes his way to the center of Israel, so a place where people actually are living. And so Rav Hirsch has this idea. Um, there's this balancing act between on the one one hand, we want to be secluded. On the one hand, that's where some of the greatest growth comes. At the same time, as Jews, we believe that we have to embrace society. But it's this balancing act where we recognize that if we're immersed and enmeshed in society, that isn't necessarily the place where we begin our spiritual journey. So perhaps, you know, for some, you may see this as the gap year of the year in yeshiva or seminary. For some, it may be some time spent doing something specific and spiritual, but ultimately then going and moving further north or more further towards civilization. That's where Hirsch says the Ramban understands that he actually does not live there, even though the Pasuk seems to indicate, but that he would travel there quite often. Why does he travel there quite often? Says the Ramban, precisely because the fact that the angel appeared to Hagar in that place, it was a place of a great miracle. It was a place which demonstrated that no matter how bad the situation is, you should not despair. And therefore Yitzchak would frequent this place as a place of, of visiting, as a place of perhaps even davening, as we'll see soon. And, um, okay, and therefore, the idea being that there's a place, a spiritual place, a place where some great spiritual, great miracles happened, and therefore Yitzchak goes there to daven. Okay? Now, it's, 
Okay, let, let, let's keep on reading. Let's keep on reading. Yitzchak goes, how do they translate this? Okay, so they translate this with the Midrashic interpretation, okay, which is a, a well-known one, that lasuach, the term lasuach comes from the, the, the word sicha, could mean, typically in translation, means conversation, but our sages understand lasuach over here is a reference to tefillah, a reference to prayer. So Yitzchak went to Davin, which would actually fit quite nicely with what we just said about uh, Be'er L'chai Ro'i. It's a place of spirituality. It's a place of growth. He went to this great place in order to Davin. Okay? Now, it's worth noting, why is it that Sicha is the word that we use for Davening? Um, again, Sicha in modern Hebrew, not even modern Hebrew, refers to some form of a conversation. Right? But there's two terms that we use when describing speech. One term is Animidaber Itach, or Itcha. And one is uh, sicha, right? One, right? one is dibor and one is sicha. One is, and they both translate as speech, but there's a fundamental difference between them. Dibor comes from the word davar. Davar means a thing, okay? Sicha is conversation, but it's not revolving or limited to a certain thing. And think about the conversations you have with different people in your life. And oftentimes, uh, this sometimes falls in, into gender. Uh, this sometimes more typical to, to male or female, as we'll see in a moment. Not always. Uh, but that is that um, sometimes men are much more focused. And we're speaking stereotypically, perhaps. But for, focused on the davar, on the thing. What is it that you want? Right? The purpose of a conversation is to convey diburim, dvarim. Concepts, okay, ideas. Okay, forget the gender thing. That's gonna be, that's gonna distract us. The point is that we have conversations at times, and the goal is I want to convey certain points to you. But there are other conversations we have where it's not so much about what we say; it's about the fact that we had a conversation and something special happened there. What did you guys talk about? I don't remember. I just had a great time spending time. Right? We just caught up about what? I don't know. But that's not the point. The point is sicha is much more, it transcends Diburim, it transcends words. It's not about the particular things, it's about the connection. And that's why our sages see Sicha, that's why Chazal sees Sicha as a, as a form of Tefillah and a very high form of Tefillah. Whereas, let's say with Avram, when he davened, we know what he davened for. He's davening for the people of Sodom. He's davening, right, there's Diburim, there's words, the specific wants. With Yitzchak, the Tefillah that he is associated with is much more spiritual. He doesn't care about getting something. What he, the only thing he wants is tzamanafshi lilakim. I yearn God. I want to be close to God and therefore I want to talk to him. Whatever it is that we talk about, we could say this tefillah, that tefillah, it doesn't matter. It's not that I want health. It's not that I want, well, I just want to talk to God. That's what sicha represents, okay? Um, all that said, all that said, I, I, I want to point out that the pshat, the simple read of the text, and this is the way the Ramban learns it, is that Yitzchak went to have a conversation to talk in the fields. People would chat in the fields. At the end of the day, people would gather in the fields. We know that from later on with Yaakov. And basically, Yitzchak went to go socialize, which is interesting, right? Uh, not your typical image that we have of Yitzchak. But it is the simple read of the text. Ignore the translation you have over here, that we are introduced to Yitzchak. This is the first time that Yitzchak is a primary figure in a story. Remember last week we spoke about that Kedah, he is secondary to Avram in, in the context of, that, of, that, of the narrative. Over here, Yitzchak is the primary person in the story. And what is the first thing we're told about Yitzchak? He went to go schmooze. He went to go socialize. He has these connections with other people. 
Okay, let's keep that in the in, our, in the back of our minds. Lifnos ar erev, it is towards the evening. Again, this is why Chazal say that Yitzchak instituted Mincha, Mincha Zavin, towards the evening at the end of the day. And that's why Yitzchak is associated with Mincha. Vayisa enav, he lifts his eyes. Vayar vihine gmalim baim, he sees that there are camels coming. Okay? Vatisa Rivka es eneha, Rivka lifts her eyes. Vatera es Yitzchak, and she sees Yitzchak. Vatipol me'al hagamal. Oy. Okay, I'm not letting the, I'm not liking the translation today. Okay, I'm going to translate accurately, and then we'll and then we'll come back to where they're coming from in their translation. The reason I use them, uh, thank you Chabad.org, is because of the fact that they line up the Hebrew and English so nicely, um, better than some of the more uh, technical and. Um, yeah, better than some of the other translations. Okay, one way or another. Again, Rivka lifts up her eyes. This is her first encounter with, with Yitzchak. And she sees Yitzchak and she falls off the camel. Okay, now the Ramban points out, again, the Ramban over here is very much focused on the Pshat. He says that Nafal numerous times in Tanakh does not actually mean to fall. It could mean move to the side. Okay? Which would follow actually the translation over here. She let herself down. It could mean that she goes to the side. Now again, does she know who she's seeing over here? Does she know who it is that she sees? Doesn't seem like it, right? And actually in the next Pasuk, she is going to ask, right? Let's just read 65, right now, and we'll come back to this. Then she turns to Eliezer, Who is this man? It's my master. Okay, we'll come back to the Pasuk in a moment, right? But the point is she doesn't know who this person is, okay? So why is she going to the side? The Ramban says this is a for, just a regular form of modesty. In the ancient world, she sees this uh, man of some stature, and therefore she turns to the side, she turns away. That's what nafal means. It really doesn't even mean coming off the camel. It just means that she turns to the side, she turns away as a way of not looking at him. Um, okay, that, that, that was a form of modesty where she would not look at him. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, the, the other commentators understand that no, she does actually recognize it's Yitzchak, but it doesn't seem, Rav Hirsch under, argues, that she does believe that she does know it's Yitzchak, although the Pshat, the simple read of the Pasuk does not indicate that, because only in Pasuk Samachay does she ask who it is. And so, going back to, I think, the simplest read, we have the Ramban who says that she turns away or turns to the side, or maybe even comes off the camel as a form of modesty and submission for this imposing individual that she sees. But the Hamigdavar, Okay, the Nitzivra, Matali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, understands that she actually falls off the camel. She was so overawed by Yitzchak and the way he looked. He must have had quite the hadras panim, quite the, quite the face, quite the look, quite the imposing look, that when she saw him, she was so overwhelmed that she literally falls off the camel. Which is the simplest read of Vatipo Me'al Gamal, that she falls off the camel. The Ramban's bothered by that because it seems... Crazy. Can you, can you be so, have you ever fall, literally fallen off your seat from shock? I don't know. Maybe you have. But, but I don't know. You don't actually, you, you know, it's an expression. It doesn't typically happen. For her to fall off a camel would seem to be a wild thing to take place. And therefore, Mo, the Ramban and others try to reject this, this read. But, but the Nitziv points out, okay, that she is immediately overwhelmed by his personality. And, and we're going to come back to that point as well. Let's, you know, they, they say, they talk about first impressions, right? First impressions are very meaningful. So over here, the first impression that we have between Rivka and Yitzchak, how, do we, how would you categorize it? If she's literally falling off the camel, what term would we use to describe that? I don't know. I'm asking for help over here. Come on, people. <laughs> what, what would you say? 
love at first sight. Well, I don't know if it's love, yes. right? So, Margie, I love your your, your positive perspective. But who, who, yes, I, I think shock, right? There, there's shock, right? She, there's it, it's. You could say yes, yeah, she's love struck, and that's that's okay. I, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. She was overwhelmed. Overwhelmed, yeah. shocked, intimidated. Good, right? So that's her first impression. Now, I don't know the psychology of if it's true that first impressions make a lasting impression. They say it does. I don't know. I never researched it. But, but the first impression, in, in general, in, in the Torah, we do have uh, an idea that the first typically is meant to give us some inkling when we're introduced to a character, just like in any book you read, any good literature, our introduction to a character or our introduction to a certain dynamic in some ways is meant to shed light and give us uh, a perspective of that, of that dynamic or relationship or individual throughout the rest of the reading. So again, let's, if that's the case, Yitzchak and Rivka, their first encounter, the simplest read is one of shock. She is overwhelmed or intimidation, even better. She is intimidated by this imposing individual. She doesn't, it seems, even know who he is, but she is overwhelmed by his personality. Okay? Again, we don't know, we haven't, we don't know anything about the way he looks, but from Rivka's response, presumably he has a very imposing look. Even though, as I mentioned a moment ago, all we know about him is that either he is davening, okay, he's a very spiritual person, that would make more sense with this read. Alternatively, he is a very social person, which, you know, we went to Suach Masad, our introduction to Yitzchak, again, just going, using that same line of thinking, our introduction to Yitzchak is that he's social. He goes and he schmoozes with other people, okay? Uh, nonetheless, whatever it is that she sees, she is overwhelmed, okay? Let's keep on reading, okay? Um, where are we? Sorry. Um, okay, so Pasuk Sameche. Let's read that Pasuk again. Vatomer El Ha'evet. She turns to uh, the master. Mia Isha Lazeh Ha'holech Basalek Rasenu. Who is this person who's greeting us? Vayomra Evet Hu Adoni. This is my master. Now she realizes this is my spouse, my future spouse. So what does she do? Vatikach Hatsaif Vatiskas. She takes the kerchief or the veil and she covers herself, which by the way, this is our most primary source for something that takes place at a wedding. And that is... Right, the bedekin, the veiling. Right, when when, I'm sorry, some spilled. The bedekin. That's right, the bedekin. That's right, exactly. So the bedekin, right, is the people you know attribute that to this. Uh, there's more reasons, but this we see over here that she's covering her face as she's going to meet her spouse for the very first time. Okay. The Hamigdavar, and again, this is not my focus, but I think it's worth mentioning because it's such a wild idea. The Nitziv, again, the Hamigdavar, he has a sefer called the Hamigdavar, and of Salzburg to Berlin, he suggests this idea of the first impression being the, the, the lasting impression. And he points out that Yitzchak, as the Ramban point, argues, doesn't actually live in this area. He's just traveling here. And says the Nitziv, it's all, quote-unquote, coincidental, completely coincidental, that Rivka and Yitzchak are meeting away from Yitzchak's home. In all probability, she should have traveled back with Eliezer, who was on his way back to whom? To Avraham. And that's presumably where Yitzchak lived. And had she gone back with Eliezer, she would have met Avraham first. He is, after all, the elder, the statesman of the family. And she would meet this, Avraham's probably a very nice person. All we know about him, he's a man of chesed. And she'd meet this loving, elderly man. And she would probably be taken by his charm. Possibly. It was probably a very charismatic individual. And then eventually she would meet Yitzchak. Yitzchak would be invited in and she'd meet Yitzchak. And yeah, Yitzchak's a little bit more imposing. But God had other plans. God said, no, no, no. If she meets Yitzchak that way, she won't be as overwhelmed. She won't be as shocked or intimidated as you said. And therefore, that's why the Torah has to tell us he's now 
Oddly enough, he's traveling to this place. He's traveling to the south. He's in Be'er Lacharu. It's not where he lives. He lives with Avram. But he happens to be there. And she happens to see him even before Eliezer is able to tell her who it is that they're encountering. And she is overwhelmed. And that feeling of overwhelmingness, that shock, that, that feeling of being so small in front of this great person defines the entirety of their relationship. Why is that significant? Because later on, next week, uh, we're going to read the story of Brachos, of this notion where Yitzchak wants to give Brachos to Esav, and uh, Rivka wants to ultimately get the Brachos to Yaakov, and God willing, maybe that uh, next week, yeah, God willing, we'll focus on that next week, maybe, so we'll talk about it a little bit more, but suggests the Nitziv that the only way the story would pan out the way it did is only because of this dynamic. Because if they had a normal quote-unquote relationship, then Rivka would have turned to her husband and said, Honey, Esav isn't the good guy. Yaakov is. But we don't see that dialogue. There seems to be this submission, this fear of some sort that she's unable to correct him. She's unable to redirect him. And that's for a plan. Again, we'll talk about that next week, God willing. But it all comes back to this first encounter. It all comes back to this first encounter where there is this, this uh, you know, strange dynamic where she is overwhelmed by him. And that is going to play a role in the brachos that we're going to read about next week. Again, that's not my focus, but it's a fascinating idea. And he suggests that their entire relationship is influenced by this episode. Okay? Everyone with me? Any questions, thoughts? Okay, keep that in the back of your mind as we begin next week's part shot. But it, it certainly is... A very interesting idea, I think. Okay. Vayisaper ha'ever liyitzchak, verse 66, Pasuk Samachvav. The servant tells Yitzchak, it's called Varmasher Asa, all the things that happened. Vaviyeha Yitzchak ha'ohel Sarah imo. And Yitzchak brings her to the tent of Sarah, her mother. Vayikach, um, Vayikach is Rivka. I'm sorry? His mother. What did I say? Did I say something else? Okay, doesn't matter. Okay, thank you for the, thank you. Yes. Okay, so again, Yitzchak brings uh, her to the tent of Sarah, his mother. Thank you. Vayikach es Rivka, and he takes Rivka vatila Isha as a wife. Vayeha veha, and he loves her. Vayinachem Yitzchak achare imo, and he is comforted for his mother. Okay, this pasuk needs a lot of unpacking. Okay, but before we unpack this pasuk, I want to now share with you what I alluded to earlier. And that is what I guess we'll call the academic approach. Okay? Appro- an approach that you hear about Yitzchak is the following. There are those, you could, you could Google, you could read some interesting articles about this, who suggest that Yitzchak is traumatized from the Akedah. He is traumatized from the Akedah and, they suggest, by the sudden death of his mother. So first of all, the sudden death of his mother is, that, that's a little silly. She was 127. Uh, that, that's a hard, you know, it's... It, uh, loss is a loss, but, but I, I wouldn't call that a sudden death of the mother. It's hard to say that's a sudden death. But the idea is, the idea of the Akedah um, being something which was overwhelming, his own father holding over a knife over him, and we could certainly relate to that. I mean, not relate in the sense that we've been in that situation, but we could relate in the sense that we could appreciate where this idea is coming from. I'd imagine that if I was in Yitzchak's shoes, I would probably be pretty terribly traumatized. If my father would pull that on me, uh, it would not be good. It would be terrible, right? So there is this assumption that Yitzchak is therefore traumatized. Not only that, he is emotionally stunted, okay? And where do they see this? They see this in a couple places. One is that there isn't a lot of dialogue that we hear from Yitzchak. We, We actually hear almost nothing coming out of Yitzchak's mouth. And therefore there's this assumption the, the argument goes that he is incapable of communicating in a healthy fashion. He is un- un- unable to 
to connect, to communicate, to be a, a social individual. Why? Again, he's emotionally stunted due to these reasons, or at least the trauma of the Akedah. Another thing that they, they point to is the fact that uh, this Pasuk that we just read, the notion that Rivka, what is the role of Rivka? There's something interesting over here, right? Rivka is, is, is being is, his wife, but Rivka also, in some ways, they're arguing, is taking over the role of his mother. And that goes back to this idea that Yitzchak is in some ways stunted emotionally, and Rivka is not so much your typical spouse, but rather is a surrogate mother who will care for Yitzchak as a child. That's the argument, or that's the approach uh, that's taken. One more point that they make to this approach, they argue that this is why um, Eliezer is sent to go find a spouse. Yitzchak is perhaps incapable of making these emotional decisions to figure out the emotional IQ of this, of this woman to find a good spouse. Yitzchak doesn't necessarily know what to look for, and that's why, uh, Yitz, that's why Eliezer is sent and Yitzchak does not go. That is the academic approach. What are your thoughts? What are your questions? What are your uh, agree, disagree? Tell me what you think before we go further. Seems like you... Well, I don't like it. <laughs> Go ahead, Lisa. Tell me uh, why. I mean, he, if he's one of the others, uh, that paints a very sort of uh, small picture of him as being a, you know, not a very capable person. Uh, I, I have a hard time reconciling that with everything else about him that we learn and, you know, and how we... You know, we talk about him now and all that. Yeah, so. Certainly, certainly, right. Certainly within our tradition, there's, there's no question about it. I don't want to be clear. And, uh, you know, this is, this is not an approach that's, that's being born out of uh, our tradition at all. Um, <laughs> but certainly within our tradition, it's like is, is uh, you know, someone we look up to, someone we idolize, and therefore it, it certainly doesn't sit well. Um, what are your thoughts from... Yeah. A- no, I was just going to say also, you know, I don't think it was necessarily so unusual to have the father send somebody else to go get... A, uh, a bride for his son. I don't think that shows his lack of competency. Um, you know, things were different then. They had their they had their minhagim. There were certain social norms. Right. Excellent. So so it's very important whenever we learn any any part of Tanakh. Right. We we have to be. Uh, you know, we can't be. Uh, you know, we we can't make assumptions about what is today and impose that on what was. Not that long ago, you know, uh, people were. This would be normal. This would be very normal. You know, people did not meet like they meet nowadays. Certainly in the ancient world, we're talking about thousands of years ago, uh, no reason to assume that this was out of the ordinary in any way. Um, further, what is the Torah again? Let's go back to the text. That's where it all begins. What, what is... Uh, Can I, I, I say something? Sure, please. Also, Yitzhak was with, was where Hagar and Yishmael were. Mm-hmm. Some people suggest that he was there to heal the rift of the family. So that doesn't really sound like someone who's emotionally stunted. Right. That's true. And again, we're going to look to our Midrashic literature, right? They, some actually say, and thank you for bringing this up, some, are, some suggest, and again, this question of what in the world is he doing in the place of Hagar, they say, yes, precisely. Not like we suggested earlier that he's there to pray, but rather he's there to bring, now that Sarah has passed, Sarah passed away in the beginning of this Parsha, um, now that Sarah has passed, um, Yitzchak goes out to bring Hagar back to Avram, and we so find Avram remarrying, Avram. Um, right? And many suggest yeah. that the person he remarries, although she goes by another name, is actually Hagar, right? So, and certainly in that approach, if he is A, emotionally aware of Avram's lacking, B, emotionally savvy enough to go and persuade this woman who's just kicked out of the household, again, ancient world, different, I get it, uh, but still has the, the wherewithal to go ahead and do so, that's true. But let's, 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 it's good. I, I, I agree with all those points. Um, Question? Yes. 
you're basing this on the on a strict timeline that everything happened one after the next. Okay. And we had this conversation last week that not necessarily you're assuming that he based when Hogger was kicked out, we're assuming that the term nar is used there whether he was thirteen or how old Yishmael was. Mm-hmm. This story happens significantly later after the Akedah. Based on that, if it's I mean it could be thirty years later, forty years later. Right. Right. So, so- Right, so the, 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 I think where, where our sages are coming from, where Chazal is coming from in making this assumption that he's getting Hagar, as Shmuel's pointing out, is she still sticking around in this little well over here? It seems pretty odd. But I think they're coming more from a textual perspective than a timeline. They're coming from the fact that why is it highlighting that one random place, this one well, there must be significance. That's why some suggest it's tefillah, uh, because of the, what happened there, but that's why others suggest it's more to do with Hagar. But it's not so much the timeline, I think, as it is the, the textual hint that something's going on over here. There's but some connection. Are we saying that Be'er Roi is more spiritual than where the Akedah happened for the, him? And that's a place that his life was on the line he was saved. Right. What could be more than his, uh, his estranged half-brother who almost died that was saved? Good, good question. Good question. I, I think there's an answer. I'm going to hold off on that. I, I don't know. I'm not sure if it's a good enough answer, but I think there's, I think there's an answer. Uh, so think about it, but it's, 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 a good, it's a good question, right? Is that really the most spiritual place? Um, again, and I want to come back to this. The simple read, and I, I really want to just stick to the, the simple read of the text over here. The simple read of the Chumash is telling us what? It's not about davening over there. He went there to schmooze. He went there to socialize. Okay, so let's start putting some of that. I just want, I just from the text itself, I, I, I think some of the points that are brought up are from Midrash, Midrash which of course I, 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 is, is, our, is our tradition of how we look at it. But I think, I think we could respond to the academics, respond to these scholars without drawing on the Midrash from the text itself. Okay, so let's, let's first come back. Let's start at this passage and go backwards, right? The, uh, it says that he is, uh, that when Rivka comes into the, the household, he goes ahead. What does it say again? It says that he brings her into the house. He marries her. He loves her. He loves her. Okay. And he is comforted for his mother. Again, so the scholarly approach is to say that he's comforted for his mother. That means that he had a stunted emotional growth and she is taking over that role. The Ramban says, you know, the Ramban kind of broadens this and, and uh, he's not getting Freudian, but I think, it, you know, it's human nature that our romantic relationships are directly impacted by our parental relationships, right? We, and not, not to say that we are looking for a surrogate or looking for a supplement, but of course those relationships play a significant role. And there is, and, and what do we know about Yitzchak and his role with his mother? Until this passage, we actually know nothing. But what we learn over here is that he missed her terribly. So first and foremost, you see a deep emotional connection. Again, it's a relationship between a mother and a child that could speak to an immaturity, possibly. But we are, this is the first person who we're told has a connection to a parent, an emotional connection to a parent, a love for a parent, and a yearning for a parent. We don't find that elsewhere. Okay? And he misses her. There's a certain love and a certain sense of fondness that he's missing. Okay? So, again, Rivka comes into the story. And not that she necessarily has to sup, you know, supplement or take over the motherly role, but there is some love missing in his life that his spouse, that his wife, takes over. But there's another word that I think this... So again, the fact that... I don't, I don't see this necessarily as having to be a replacement for his mother. But there's another word in this pasuk which I think is so important. What does it say about Yitzchak and his connection to Rivka? He, vayavva, he loves her. Okay? What do we know about the relationship between Adam and Chava from the text itself? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Can't do this anymore, right? Nothing. Zero. Okay. Um, what do we know about the relationship between Noah and his wife? 
Nothing. What do we know about the relationship between Avram and Sarah? We know that he loved her from this week's Parsha, but you know what? It never actually says, Vayaveha, that Avram loves Sarah. It's abundantly clear in the fact that he mourns her and there's loss. But the very first time, and again, this is significant, I think throughout the Torah, the first time you find something is always going to be its most significant place. The first person who we are taught has a loving relationship with a spouse is none other than Yitzchak and Rivka. So even the most extreme approach, like I mentioned earlier, this approach of the Nitziv, who says that there's some imbalance in this relationship, that she is overawed by him, that isn't necessarily mutually exclusive to there being a loving relationship. You could have awe. I, I, hope, I imagine you had, you know, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a, 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 some scholar, maybe it's an art. I don't know, someone who you are overawed by, but you also love them. You might be afraid to say certain things in front of them, but there's still love, right? The, well, there's no way around that. The Torah, the first time, and really one of the few times that the Torah tells us about the nature of a relationship between a man and a woman is here in the context of Yitzchak and Rivka. So let's, let's pull this together a little bit and let's come back to the, the question of our introduction to the psychological sketch of, of Yitzchak. The pshat, the simple read of the text tells us we find Yitzchak conversing in the field with his friends. That's our introduction to Yitzchak. The first time he is the leader, the first time he has the main role in a story is he's schmoozing. He's talking. He's getting together with other people. That's very, uh, like, almost unbiblical, but it certainly tells, forget that aside, it certainly speaks to, no pun intended, a certain... Uh, so, you know, a social being, someone who is connected to others, right? And even if you want to say that it means prayer, as we saw in the translation, and our sages say, this is a highly specialized form of prayer. It's relationship type prayer. It's not the bottom, the bare, you know, the, the more simplistic, more basic prayer, more basic feel as saying, I want to be better. I want to be healthy. I want this God. I want a job. I, give me the things I want. It's tefillah. That's tefillah. But that's I'm not going to use the word immature, but it's certainly a lower level of tefillah. A more sophisticated, a person who has a deeper emotional um, you know, uh, awareness and a, a, more, a more connection to their own soul, a more, again, self-awareness, their tefillah is sicha. And that's being introduced through Yitzchak. So even if it's in his relationship to God, it speaks to a person of deep emotional character. Okay? We see that he misses his mother, an indication of his emo- the emotional quality of longing, right? That's something if, if you are a completely rational individual or completely non-emotional, well, people die, we move on, right? We take it in a very dry uh, sense. We don't see that in Yitzchak. And again, as we emphasize, he is the first to love a spouse, okay? So all in all, what do we see about Yitzchak? What is our, our conclusion of Yitzchak? And, and, and it's worth before we even just, just to pause for a second. Our sages do paint a picture of Yitzchak being a very strong person in, in, uh, in all of the, in all of our, um, the, uh, throughout, throughout, both in Kabbalah as well as in the Midrashim, Yitzchak is associated with the, the Midza, the characteristic of Din, of justice, which is a very strong characteristic, very different than his father, who is a man of chesed, a man of kindness. But I think even if that's true, and he is this very strong individual, and a very, um, perhaps even calculated individual, and a very controlled individual, right? We actually see that throughout. Let's, 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 let's paint a broader picture for a second, right? Our, our, the first time we see Yitzchak, he is, so to speak, tied up. He is akud. He is tied up to the akeda, right? The physical standing is that he is a person who is, who is tight, a person who is, who is in some ways held together. And really all the things that he does, right? One of the reasons that we have it so easy to impose a narrative, to impose a sketch on Yitzchak is because we know so little about him. And therefore, it almost welcomes us in. All we know about him is that he actually copies his father. 
right? His father goes to these places, he goes to those places. His father dug certain wells, he digs the same wells. Everything he does is really copying his father. And in that respect, it's almost, you're, 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 it sounds like almost a boring individual, right? And, and I would argue, and I want to highlight this point because I think it's an important one, that there is actually a greater challenge in being a Yitzchak than being an Avram, because Avram is the revolutionary. He is the, the ideologue. He is the one who treks the new path. And then the maintenance of that, the ability to hold on to that, that's what's really challenging, right? In our own lives, right? It's very easy to start something new, right? Everything's called an initiative because it's easy to initiate, right? But to actually ma- maintain, right? Did you ever hear of uh, the chesed maintenance? No, the chesed initiative is exciting, right? But the chesed that we've been doing for the past 10 years boring, right? And that's in our own life, right? We get excited, we do something new, holding on to it's the challenge, right? So Yitzchak, as an aside, is, is, yes, he doesn't do anything novel, but that actually is his greatness. The ability to be consistent. The ability is, is one of the, the greatest uh, reflections of greatness, right? The ability to keep on doing the same thing over and over again, that is true greatness. And that's why Yitzchak is one of our avos, because there is the, the first, the one who's able to come up with the new idea, the new vision, that's Avram. There is Yitzchak who is able to hold on to that. He doesn't get bored, doesn't get stale. Halavai, it would be great if we could incorporate that into our own lives, right? You know, we, so we, we, much, we find it easier in many ways to relate to Avram, uh, but Yitzchak is probably the one we need to gain more inspiration from, that ability to hold on, the ability not to get bored of the fact that we're doing the same thing over and over again and to try to sort of, you know, dig deeper like Yitzchak did and dig those wells over and over again and to keep on finding depth there that's something which is incredibly hard, and that's the greatness of Yitzchak. And that's where that's what is is focused on and highlighted by our sages. And again, something I hope we could take into our own lives. But this other idea, and and this is I just wanted to spend some time uh, just addressing this idea that I've seen unfortunately too many times. I think is a fascinating idea. It's an intriguing idea. This idea of him being emotionally stunted. But there is aside from the fact that our sages clearly disagree with that. But the text itself does not allow for such a reading. The the many it is one of the few characters we find so such multifaceted relationships interpersonally with other people with a, with a parent and the first time we see the notion of love between him and a spouse it is i think just a a very uh, shallow and and just a, a we, uh, just a, a lazy read to read into Yitzchak that there is an emotional uh, limitation uh, again not from our sages, but simply from a basic read of the text. Okay, so again, just to quickly summarize, uh, Yitzchak, our, our notion, uh, the greatness of Yitzchak is the ability to hold on, to maintain, to not leave go, even when we get bored, even when we lose some of our energy. That is greatness. We all know that. It's just hard to do. And so we need to invoke that, that, that energy, that spirit, that inspiration of Yitzchak. Uh, but to, to all the critics, all those who suggest that he is someone who is lacking emotionally, I think we've read quite clearly that the text does not allow for that. He might actually be the most emotionally intelligent of our sages, but I guess we can leave that up for debate. Okay? Have, that's all I got. Any questions? Any thoughts? Okay. Well, thank you for joining me. I'm sorry, class was a little shorter than usual. Uh, Okay. Have a fantastic, fantastic Shabbos. Good to see you all, and take care. Take care. Good Shabbos. Good Shabbos. Thank you, Rabbi.